Well, good morning and welcome to the Cato Institute uh, and to our 13th annual Constitution Day Symposium. I'm Roger Pilon, director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies and your host for today. We've got a full program for you of reviewing the most important decisions from the Supreme Court's last term, uh, along with cases coming up, and concluding with the 13th annual B. Kenneth Simon lecture uh, delivered this year by Judge Diane Sykes uh, of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, for more detailed discussion of the discussions of the decisions we'll uh, be discussing in upcoming cases, uh, we hope you enjoy the 13th annual Cato Supreme Court review that you picked up on your way in. This year we mark the 227th anniversary of the day in 1787 when the framers concluded their work in Philadelphia sending the document they had just completed out to the states for ratification. Reflecting the vision of liberty through limited government uh, that the founders first set forth in the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution sought to establish a more perfect union toward that end. Much has happened in the ensuing 227 years, of course, some of it not, uh, some of it uh, good, such as the uh, completion of the Constitution through the addition of the Civil War amendments, some of it extraordinarily problematic, such as the major revisions of the document that took place during the New Deal, all without benefit of constitutional amendment and all undermining liberty through limited government. Indeed, the critique of that constitutional inversion has animated the work of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies from its inception and will be a constant theme throughout today's program. To give you an overview of the program, let me introduce the man who is primarily responsible for putting it together and for editing the review you have in your hands. Ilya Shapiro uh, is a senior fellow uh, at the Cato uh, Institute's Center for Constitutional Studies, and he's the editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review and the coordinator of Cato's growing amicus brief program, uh, which uh, this past term, I'm pleased to say, went 10 for... 10 and 1 on the merits briefs we filed or worked on, thereby vastly outperforming the Solicitor General's office, which was 11 and 9 on the term. Which was a great improvement over the previous <clears throat> Yes. Ilya is a graduate of Princeton, uh, the London School of Economics, and the University of Chicago Law School, after which he clerked for Judge E. Grady Jolly of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. He's practiced law in Washington with Cleary Gottlieb and with Patton Boggs. Before joining Cato, uh, he was a special assistant advisor to the multinational force in Iraq on rule of law issues. He's published widely and is a frequent guest on radio and TV, and he lectures at law schools across the country. I'll now turn the program over to Ilya, and we'll return after lunch to moderate our second panel, and then finally to conclude the program uh, and introduce Judge Sykes for the B annual B. Kenneth Simon Lecture. So, please welcome Ilya Shapiro. Thanks, Roger. Welcome, everyone. Uh, you see me 
on my phone. I'm not putting in last minute changes on my fantasy football team. First of all, it's still a couple of days before the weekend. I have time. Also, uh, my team's doing well, staying clear of injuries and child abuse allegations and all the rest, so I don't have to be worried about that. But more importantly, and in all seriousness, here uh, at Cato, we are very modern, and so uh, there's a hashtag uh, for today's event. Now, I did not come up with a hashtag. I think it's kind of awkward, but if you're going to live tweet, uh, Josh Blackman, of course, already knows this, but anyone else who's going to be indulging, uh, the hashtag is CatoSCR14. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. And, however, if you or those walk, uh, watching at home have questions for uh, the panelists uh, during the panel, uh, or for me generally, feel free to tweet at me. My handle is iShapiro. All right, those most important uh, logistics out of the way. Uh, again, uh, welcome. This is the 13th volume of the uh, Cato Supreme Court Review. Um, we release this journal every year in conjunction with this Constitution Day Symposium, uh, about two and a half months after the previous term ends and uh, two and a half weeks before the next one begins. We're proud both of the speed with which we publish this tome, uh, authors of articles, those of you in the audience and on the panel who have written for us know that you have no more than a month after the last decided cases, uh, and of its accessibility, at, le at least insofar as the court's work allows. This isn't a typical law review. Those of you who uh, are unfortunately familiar with typical law reviews, whose uh, prolix submissions use mo more space for pedantic and abstruse footnote than actual text, uh, and that request footnotes for every banal statement. We spent a lot of time taking out author's footnotes. Uh, this is a book on law intended for everyone from legal professionals to educated laymen and interested citizens. We run a tight ship here. Uh, refer to your schedule in the uh, registration packet. We go boom, 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 panel to panel. We have one hour strictly for lunch. That'll be upstairs in the second floor Jaeger Conference Center. Um, Thanks very much to David Lampo and the design and art team, Linda Asu and the conference staff, all the interns and associates who you see flitting about, working the desk, working the microphones, uh, John Blanks, who kind of uh, corrals the VIPs and makes sure that I'm where I need to be and I'm here on time, apparently, so that's his doing. Uh, neither the review nor the symposium would be possible without these people. I reiterate our hope, Roger's hope, uh, that he just mentioned that this collection of essays will secure and advance the Madisonian first principles of our Constitution. And I can say for the first time at our event, our Constitution, because I just became a citizen in June. But you know, like most immigrants, I do a job that uh, native-born Americans won't, <laughs> defending the Constitution. We try to give renewed voice to the framers' fervent wish that we have a government of laws and not of men. And in so doing, we hope also to do justice to the rich legal tradition in which judges, politicians, and ordinary citizens alike understand that the Constitution reflects and protects the natural rights of life, liberty, and property and serves as a bulwark against the abuse of government power. In these heady times when the people are beginning to demand an end to unconstitutional government actions and unilateral executive expansions, it's more important than ever to remember our proud roots in the Enlightenment tradition. All right, our first panel today appropriately covers the First Amendment, an area of law that provided rich fodder for the Supreme Court this term. Indeed, we had not only speech cases of various kinds, but those invoking the freedom of assembly and free exercise of religion. Uh, and another challenging and alleged establishment of religion. 
While the court's been criticized for avoiding controversial and potentially divisive cases in other areas of law, rightly criticized, I'd say, uh, when it comes to the First Amendment, we, we do see a steady stream of high-profile cases. An interesting thread running through these disparate cases that most of them these days involve challenges brought by libertarians and conservatives. Uh, this isn't my spin. In March, David Savage had a long front-page article in the LA Times regarding the trend, and Floyd Abrams, a dean of the First Amendment bar, is writing a book about it. Uh, as David Savage wrote in his piece, for decades, liberals wielded the First Amendment to protect anti-war activists, civil rights protesters, and government whistleblowers. These days, however, the Constitution's protections for free speech and religious liberty has become the weapon of choice for conservatives. This year's Supreme Court term features an unusual array of potentially powerful First Amendment claims, all of them coming from groups on the right. And in nearly every case, liberal groups, often in alliance with the Obama administration, are taking the opposing sides, supporting state and federal laws that have come under attack from infringing on rights. Here to look at some specific cases and perhaps show how they do or don't fit into this theme are three people who are no strangers uh, to the First Amendment, who know a lot about its uses and abuses. Their full bios are in your packets, so I'll just provide a brief intro. First, we'll have New York Law School professor Nadine Strawson, also the former president of the ACLU. Nadine was so successful in that role that when she stepped down in 2008, three justices, Ginsburg, Scalia, and Souter, participated in her farewell luncheon. There are so many notable things about Nadine, but one thing you may not know is that she made her professional theater debut as the guest star in the Vagina Monologues during its run at the National Theater here in D.C. in 2001. Nadine will be discussing McCutcheon versus FEC, and I hope she'll get into the ACLU's hand-wringing over modern campaign finance law. Next, we'll have P.G. O'Rourke, America's leading political satirist, uh, and uh, since Stephen Colbert's taking over for Letterman, uh, I don't know if your agents tried to put you in for that slot on Comedy Central, but that would be just awesome. Uh, PJ is also an H.L. Mencken research fellow at Cato and worth every penny that we pay him in that role. <laughs> I first read one of his books in high school. Uh, a subversive librarian slipped me a copy of All the Trouble in the World, and it's been all downhill for me ever since. Uh, PJ will be trying not to laugh while extemporizing on the ridiculous case of Susan B. Anthony List versus Ohio's Ministry of Truth. Um, the law in question, by the way, which you can read about uh, in the volume, was overturned last week by the district court on remand from the Supreme Court. As I predicted, we will not hear about that law uh, much uh, beyond today. Finally, uh, Eric Rosbach, Deputy General Counsel at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, will discuss Town of Greece versus Galloway the case regarding legislative prayer. In his practice, Eric has represented people and institutions from many different faith backgrounds, including Buddhists, Christians, Hindus, Jains, Jews, Muslims, Santeros, and Sikhs. He's also been active overseas and has represented clients before the European Court of Human Rights, better you than me, uh, and in the highest courts of several countries. So I think it's safe to say that if your case doesn't have a prayer, you should hire Eric and his colleagues. <laughs> Nadine. Thank you so much, Roger and Ilya, and it's delightful to be back here at Cato. I've uh, had the pleasure and honor of participating in many of these symposia, uh, including having had the high honor of delivering the Simon Lecture. And apologies in advance, I have to leave right after this panel because I do earn my living as a law professor, and 
I take that responsibility very seriously, so I will be meeting my class later today to teach them the truth about the Constitution. So the McCutcheon case, which Ilya asked me to talk about, struck down aggregate contribution limits to federal candidates and committees. This was the sixth decision by the Roberts Court to review campaign finance regulations, and the sixth to strike down the challenge regulations on First Amendment grounds. These decisions have been incredibly maligned and misunderstood thanks to a lot of media distortion by media outlets that all have an unacknowledged conflict of interest because their voices are amplified by every law that restricts other voices in the campaign context. The hysterical overreactions that greeted McCutcheon lumped it together with the court's 2010 Citizens United ruling as dooming democracy. Now, let me note two points in response briefly. First, predictions that big money would drown out other voices have been proven wrong in both elections that have taken place since Citizens United was decided. And secondly, these two cases deal with very distinct issues, which too often get lumped together. Citizens United struck down limits on independent expenditures by corporations and unions, whereas McCutcheon struck down aggregate limits on contributions by individuals. And as I will explain, those are very distinct phenomenon and have been throughout the court's campaign finance jurisprudence. Now, I personally have felt a special connection to the McCutcheon case ever since two old friends and colleagues of mine wrote a book about it, When Money Speaks, by Ronald Collins and David Scover. Cato hosted a terrific panel about the McCutcheon decision this spring at which Ron spoke. You can watch it on Cato's website, which I uh, certainly enjoy doing. And also, uh, I highly recommend for those of you who are really interested in this case, the terrific article in the Cato Supreme Court Review that Alan Dickerson wrote. Well, Ron and David in their book were so kind as to dedicate this terrific book to Nadine Strassen, the first lady of liberty. But I'd say that uh, not because I have an inflated ego, to the contrary. My defense of letting money speak, to paraphrase their title, has in most of my circles caused me to be called a puppet of plutocracy, uh, not a champion of liberty. Uh, seriously, and this ties into uh, some of the remarks that Elia was making, there are very few liberal civil libertarians who oppose campaign finance regulations. Even within the ACLU, and a number of you were asking me about all the media uh, about this recently, uh, I know Cato is completely unfamiliar with disagreements within organizations. Uh, uh, strange as it is, even within the ACLU, we've been having debates, and those of us who are First Amendment absolutists have been losing some ground, although I'm happy to say that in contrast with former ACLU leaders, the current ACLU is very strongly opposing uh, and effectively opposing the proposed constitutional amendment on this ground. If you want more in the weeds detail, I'd be happy to answer questions, but I don't want to divert too much from, from the case at hand. Uh, it was the ACLU that long spearheaded the fight against all of these laws, including in the 1976 landmark case Buckley versus Vallejo, in which the ACLU was both a plaintiff and co-counsel and opposed 
every single aspect of the Federal Election Campaign Act. This summer, I teamed up with one of the few other, what I'm now calling liberal-tarians, uh, who oppose government regulations in this area, namely Floyd Abrams, for an IQ Squared debate. And I'd like to note that one of the leaders of the fantastic IQ Squared program is Nick Rosencrantz, who's also a Cato Senior Fellow and who will be speaking here today. Despite the fact that Floyd is demonstrably one of the nation's most effective advocates, the live audience at our debate voted overwhelmingly against our defense, even of the right to spend your own money on your own political expression. And polls indicate that this reaction is typical, which is really worrisome when you consider the ongoing push for a constitutional amendment to overturn Supreme Court rulings in this area, which would make a gaping exception to the First Amendment for the very political expression that is at the core of the First Amendment. So even though we deregulation supporters have been winning in the Supreme Court, I would say because we have been winning in the Supreme Court, we have been losing the proverbial battle for hearts and minds. And worse yet, the contempt and that's not an overstatement. The contempt and disdain that have been heaped upon the Supreme Court rulings in this area have spilled over into a more general disdain for the First Amendment, uh, which Ilya alluded to, even among key institutions that one would expect and hope to be especially protective of free speech, including the media and including universities. So I really want you to keep this broader concern in mind as we directly consider McCutcheon. Again, it struck down aggregate limits that federal law imposes on someone's total contributions to all federal candidates and committees in contrast with base limits on each single contribution. The aggregate limits restrict how many candidates or committees a donor may support. McCutcheon is the first time that the court ever struck down a federal contribution limit. And that's important in light of the distinction, as I mentioned, the court has drawn uh, consistently between contributions to campaigns on the one hand uh, versus expenditures in support of campaigns on the other hand. That distinction goes all the way back to Buckley. Buckley said that contributions are both less central to free expression and more likely to cause quid pro quo corruption or its appearance. So Buckley subjected expenditure limits to what we lawyers call strict scrutiny, presumptively unconstitutional, and struck down all such limits in that case, uh, whereas it subjected contribution limits only to intermediate scrutiny, more deferential to Congress, and upheld all such limits. That dichotomy was controversial from the get-go. As I said, the ACLU and the other plaintiffs opposed the contribution limits on the same grounds that we opposed the expenditure limits. Since then, that dichotomy has gotten even more controversial as we live with its unintended adverse consequences. Among other things, the pernicious combination of an unlimited demand for funds with the need to raise them in strictly limited increments. And that has led to the huge amount of time that candidates have to spend in fundraising. And it also makes it harder 
for non-incumbents to mount meaningful challenges. Because relatively unknown candidates depend on seed money to get started, a few large contributions from the necessarily small donor base that they have at the outset. Notably, one of the Buckley plaintiffs was Eugene McCarthy, who repeatedly said he could not have mounted his historic challenge to Lyndon Johnson without very large contributions from a small handful of fat cat liberal donors. And McCarthy could never understand how liberals could possibly support these limits in light of that experience. So the ACLU argued in Buckley that contribution limits, as well as spending limits, violate not only free speech and association principles, but also violate the very equality principles that are said to justify those limits. And perversely, I, I continue to believe that invalidating contribution limits would boost democratic and egalitarian ideals, as well as free speech. So, I welcome McCutcheon as a small but notable step in that direction. Now, to be sure, the court in McCutcheon declined to the request to reverse Buckley's general distinction outright. That was a request that was made not only by the plaintiff, but also by some friends of the court, including the Cato Institute in a very forceful brief that was written by Ilya and Sophie Cole. The court said it had no occasion to reconsider Buckley's general deference toward contribution limits because it conceded that the aggregate limits failed even deferential scrutiny. On the other hand, McCutcheon did reverse the portion of Buckley which had upheld the aggregate limits that were then in effect. To explain how the court reached that result, I have to give you a little background. In Buckley, the court said, there was little, if any, evidence that unlimited campaign contributions actually caused quid pro quo corruption, which is the exchange of money for political favors, which was already illegal under bribery laws. However, in an excess of caution, the court still upheld contribution limits as a prophylactic measure to prevent circumvention of the existing laws. Ever since then, the government has sought to justify all new regulations as attempts to avoid circumvention of existing regulations, even without any evidence that existing regulations are not working. So to quote the court, prophylaxis upon prophylaxis, McCutcheon has followed that pattern. The base contribution limit to candidates, $2,600, presumes that contributions at that level aren't large enough to create even a presumption of corruption. As campaign finance attorney James Bob commented, that number is so low, it can't even buy a Democrat congressman. <laughs> so uh, logically, multiple such contributions to many candidates also don't create even an appearance of corruption of any of those candidates. Therefore, the government had to come up with another rationale for the aggregate limit, and here's what it was that the aggregate limit was needed to stop the donor from colluding with multiple candidates to whom the donor gave money so that all of those candidates would collude to pass on all of those contributions to a single candidate in such a way that the single candidate would realize who the original donor was and be inappropriately beholden to that donor. The McCutcheon court rightly concluded that this rationale has many flaws. First, there's no evidence that any such schemes have ever been implemented. So the government and the Supreme Court dissenters had to rely on wild hypotheticals. 
Second, any such schemes would violate existing regulations. Third, the court suggested alternative new regulations that could further prevent this hypothetical possibility, speculative possibility, from occurring that would be less burdensome on speech. While the vote was five to four to strike down the aggregate limits, Chief Justice Roberts' opinion was only for a four-justice plurality. Justice Thomas refused to join that opinion because he has had a longstanding position that contribution limits should be fully unconstitutional. Although the plurality refused to join him in taking that step explicitly, Justice Thomas explained that the, major, the plurality's rationale, the plurality did not have a rationale that was consistent with constitutional, uh, with limits on contribution limits. And I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to explain the details of that, but I do agree with Justice Thomas uh, when he says that the, 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 the ongoing rule or limits of uh, the court's ongoing upholding of base contribution limits is now a rule that is lacking a rationale. So that's it seriously, and the dissenters, uh, the dissent written by Justice Breyer, really critiqued the uh, plurality opinion from that perspective, that it does undermine, although it didn't uh, explicitly overturn base contribution limits. There's a second really significant way in which McCutcheon uh, drills a hole into existing campaign finance regulations, and um, that is that it explicitly sets out as a concrete and categorical rule that the only rationale that will be accepted for any campaign finance regulations is quid pro quo corruption, the exchange of fav political favors for money, or its appearance, and very importantly and explicitly and categorically for the first time, the court clearly rejected a broader, more malleable concept of corruption that could just, was said to justify in a few past decisions uh, to justify regulations, this concept of undue access or influence. Uh, many of us believe that that is, a, that is what democracy is all about. You vote for a candidate, you give money to a candidate because you want that person to share and be responsive to your concerns. That is not corruption, that is democracy in action. Uh, and a final positive aspect, long-going, long-range aspect of McCutcheon is that it is, uh, could well lead to deregulation of contributions to political parties. This was something that was emphasized, I thought, very effectively in Cato's uh, uh, Supreme Court brief, uh, which uh, explained that one of the adverse uh, impacts of the current regime has been to reduce the role of political parties, putting them in a straitjacket, with their increased accountability and transparency. I suspect that I'm out of time, so I should uh, come to my conclusion, which is that, uh, well, let me just quote, I'm sure you'll give me time to quote Cato's brief on this point, that these regulations have pushed the flow of money away from candidates and parties toward unelected, non-transparent advocacy groups, leading to a decrease in political competition. So ironically, this regulatory regime, quoting the Cato brief, undermines the main goals of most campaign finance reformers, political accountability and open government. And McCutcheon is, to quote David Brooks, a small step back toward a party-centric system, and that's positive. 
I'll give the second last word to Justice Breyer's uh, vitriolic dissent in McCutcheon, where he said the court's ruling undermines, perhaps devastates, what remains of campaign finance reform, to which I say, hear, hear. Um, my mom is finally proud. Um, I, I filed a brief uh, uh, in a Supreme Court case, uh, a brief of uh, uh, Mika Curie, uh, <laughs> in a case contesting an Ohio law against knowingly or recklessly lying about a political candidate or ballot initiative. And let me add, as a native Ohioan, that every Ohio political candidate has escaped from a lunatic asylum and all Ohio ballot initiatives are the work of Satan. Um, so I was saying, as I was saying, I, I, I filled this, filed this brief of, of whatever you call it, never mind that I can't pronounce it, and that as far as I recall from my D in high school Latin, uh, amica cura means affably smoked. Um, <laughs> plus, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I, I couldn't have gotten into law school any more than uh, I could have... Uh, gotten into med school, uh, I couldn't have gotten into to veterinary school for treating goldfish, you know, I mean, uh, flush twice and call me in the morning. Uh, but I, uh, but I, I know I filed a brief in the Supreme Court because an article in the New York Times uh, said that I did, and the New York Times, carefully checking reliable sources by not calling me, uh, <laughs> prefaced its story by noting, the Supreme Court gives lawyers who argue before it a little guidebook one tip, attempts at humor usually fall flat. Uh, ditto in the New York Times. Oh. <laughs> Mom, fortunately, is past the point of asking funny ha-ha or funny odd. Um, uh, uh, the, brief, the, the, the brief is it's, it's hilarious. And, and please do not tell my mother that I didn't write it. You know, what I did was sign it. Um, the brief was written by scholars here at Cato. Um, and Cato did not ask me to write their brief for the same reason that you would not ask me to perform your appendectomy. Okay, I'll need a knife and uh, a spoon. <laughs> Better wash my hands first. And I have to have whiskey because alcohol is both, uh, is both an antiseptic and an anesthetic uh, and give some to the patient too. You know, this is basically what would happen if you had me write a brief. Um, Ilya was, was responsible for the brief. Uh, he told me there are people who know more about constitutional law than I do. There are people who are funnier than I am, but I do occupy the very small area of overlap in that Venn diagram. Now, this Venn diagram overlap seemed um, like the only proper approach to a law that would make you a criminal in Ohio for saying that Buckeye President William Howard Taft was so fat that his wife had to grease the doorframe and tell him there was a banana cream pie in the blue room to get him into the White House. So this fight a laugh with a laugh brief was, uh, it was uh, Cato legal associate uh, Gabriel Latner's uh, idea. He wrote the first draft. Cato Research Fellow Trevor Burris added, uh, 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 added research and more jokes, and then Ilya took over. 
And I was asked to read it and give it my endorsement because I am an expert on being run out of Ohio. <laughs> Ask my mother. Um, there are laws like Ohio's prohibiting making false statements in political campaigns on the books in 15 other states. And gosh, the state legislators must have felt virtuous uh, when they passed them. You know, I mean, they're sitting there in there, you know, going liar, liar, pants on fire, noses longer than a telephone wire, and all the while sitting in their state houses with smoke billowing out of their pants trousers and uh, their uh, trousers seats and their, and their Pinocchio schnozolas uh, uh, knocking down the rostrum flagpoles and the sergeant at arms. And uh, so, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm too stupid to be a lawyer. I'm probably too stupid to be speaking at this symposium, uh, symposium today. Uh, but in fairness to myself, I'm not just stupid. I am a student of stupidity. I am a political reporter. I may not be qualified to talk to you about anything serious, but I am perfectly qualified to talk to you about politics and about politicians. I know politicians. I like politicians. I'm friends with politicians from both sides of the aisle. Uh, as, uh, but as Bunko artists, they are Rembrandts. Uh, uh, they are Sharpies and Smoothies and Sly Boots. They're fake roof floor flushers and fudge makers worthy of a monument in Hershey, PA. They're flummoxing, flimflamming, fool mongers. Politicians are trimmers with scissors the size of the federal budget. They are leg pullers who would send you to a VA hospital to have your legs sewn back on. They are spinners of yarns who would tell you that Paul Bunyan was a midget with a weed whacker. I mean, politicians are just lying sacks of crap, you know? <laughs> and that's what one of their friends says. <laughs> I mean, politicians lie to us. But it's, it's really not like they have much choice. I have sympathy about this, because imagine uh, what it would sound like on the campaign stump if a politician told the truth, even an itty-bitty bit of truth. What if a politician said, no, I can't fix public education? The problem isn't funding or overcrowding or teachers' unions or vouchers or lack of computer equipment in the classrooms. The problem is your damn kids. <laughs> uh, I'm not seeing a re-election there. Our whole system of politics is based upon lying. In fact, all systems of politics are based upon lying. The real problem isn't politicians let alone campaigns for or against politicians. The real problem is the, the stinking lie of politics itself. I mean, politicians are chefs, some half-decent, some bad, some terrible. But politics is boiled skunk. The problem is not the cook. The problem is the food. Or, or let me rephrase that. The problem isn't the cook. The problem is the cookbook. Politics is a book of lies, lies about how all of society's ills can be cured politically. This is a cookbook where the recipe for everything is to fry it. The fruit cocktail is fried. The soup is fried. The salad is fried. So is the ice cream and cake. Your Pinot Chardonnay is rolled in breadcrumbs and dunked in the deep fat fryer. I mean, this they is just- They do that at the Iowa State Fair. I they do do that. <laughs> so it's not a Pinot Chardonnay, it's more beer. <laughs> but they do do that. And, uh, I mean, let, let's take a specific uh, 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 lie, for an example. Bipartisan Budget Act of 2013. 
lowers the U.S. budget deficit by $23 billion over the long term. Over the long term is a Washington phrase meaning never. <laughs> I mean, current spending will supposedly be paid for by future savings. Forbes magazine called this a Ponzi scheme. I call that Forbes magazine being kind. Um, if the House and the Senate were in business instead of giving us the business, Bernie Madoff would have to move over and make room for 535 new cellmates. Um, or um, uh, the lie of Obamacare. Uh, uh, there's the uh, explicit lie that it's not price-fixing, but that's all that Obamacare is. For that matter, that's all that Medicare and Medicaid are, price-fixing. Price-fixing has worked so well in North Korea and and in New York City rent-controlled apartments. Everybody knows how easy it is to get a nice apartment in a good neighborhood in New York. And incidentally, why is price-fixing so wonderful with health care, but that, but all of a sudden, it's a great big crime if a couple of businessmen get together and do it on the golf course. You know, I truly don't understand that. But then there's the implicit lie of Obamacare uh, that we can afford it. It's going to be wildly expensive. Free cat food breeds kittens. And to tell a great political truth, it is almost impossible to limit, let alone reverse, any entitlement program. I'll take an example that's been around forever, Social Security. There's no money in the Social Security Trust Fund, and there never was. Money is a government IOU. The government cannot create a trust fund by saving its own IOUs. Any more than I was able to create a trust fund for myself by writing, I get a chunk of money when I turn 21 on a little piece of paper. Well, Social Security is just such a little piece of paper, except it says, I get a chunk of money when I turn 65, the government promises. Consult American Indians for a further discussion of government promises, you know? So besides the specific lies of American politics, which, which, which we could spend the rest of the day, you know, just listing, there is the general lie of American politics. American politics promises equality. Everybody the same size, same weight, same income, everybody with the same vacation. 314 million people headed for Disney World over Thanksgiving weekend. Wait time for Space Mountain is now a thousand years, you know. We have two political parties in this country, uh, the stupid party and the silly party. Um, As I mentioned, I'm stupid, so I vote for the stupid party. I usually vote Republican because Republicans are too dumb to tell as many lies as Democrats. But not too dull, not too dumb, you know, to tell some real whoppers uh, about homeland security, about the Iraq War, about no child left behind. What if they deserve to be left behind? What if they deserve a smack on the behind? You know? <laughs> Nationwide testing program to determine whether kids are what dumb. You've got kids. Kids are dumb. <laughs> Democrats lie and say we, they, that they can make us richer and smarter and taller with a better health insurance policy and ten strokes off our golf game. Republicans are more honest. The Republicans say government doesn't work, and then they get elected, and they prove it. Um, (laughs) Democrats say we don't know what's wrong with capitalism, but we can fix it. Again, the Republicans are more honest. They say there's nothing wrong with capitalism, and we can fix that. Uh, To me, the most interesting thing about political lying is how perfectly, perfectly logical it is. The biggest lies, Marxism, for instance, are always logical. 
as long as your premise is wrong, you can construct a brilliantly logical lie defending that premise. You know, I watch our politicians work themselves into a lather proving the logical benefits of government power. Now, if I were to use the same set of premises that they use in their logic, I could prove, I could prove anything. I could prove that shooting convenience store clerks stimulates the economy. I mean, jobs are created in the high-paying domestic manufacturing sector at gun and ammunition factories. Additional emergency medical technicians, security guards, healthcare providers, and morticians are hired. The unemployment rate is lowered as job seekers fill new openings on convenience store night shifts. And money stolen from convenience store cash registers stimulates the economy where stimulus is most needed in low-income neighborhoods where the people who shoot convenience store clerks go to buy their crack. I mean, considering all the good it does, I am simply flabbergasted that everyone in the House and Senate isn't smoking crack and shooting convenience store clerks this very minute. Thank you. And uh, as Eric gets up, I'll just note as a practice tip, because uh, many of you are getting CLE credit for this, that uh, if you want uh, a brief that will uh, make waves and, and get read and have a real effect, um, they won't teach you this in law school, but first of all, make sure to write it in a way that people will assume that P.G. O'Rourke wrote it. <laughs> and secondly, be sure to uh, take a stab at the uh, uh, Chief Justice uh, while you write it. Anyway, I, I especially commend footnotes 14 and 15 to you of our brief that's printed in the, in the book. Well, uh, that's a hard act to follow. Uh, I won't be talking about crack. Um, but I did want to just mention, uh, Ilya was talking about his record at the Supreme Court in recent years. And uh, we've had three, three cases uh, in the past three years. Uh, one was the uh, Hosanna Tabor case a couple of years ago that established the ministerial exception. Uh, another case was one that you might have heard of called Hobby Lobby. Uh, that uh, will get discussed a little bit later today. And then we have one more uh, coming up uh, this uh, in next month uh, called Holt Against Hobbs. And uh, in the first two uh, cases, we beat the Department of Justice uh, and the Solicitor General. Uh, so for this uh, third time, uh, they've decided to side with us in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, so I like their chances a lot, a lot better. Um, and we're looking for cases that don't begin with H, um, uh, and we hope we, hope we uh, get some soon. Um, I, uh, Ilya asked me to talk today about the town of Greece against Galloway decision, which involves uh, legislative prayer by municipalities. Um, and uh, you know, one of the articles in the book uh, discusses this. Um, the case generated a lot of comment at the time that it was issued, uh, most of which focused on the debate between the five-judge uh, majority and the four-judge dissent. But since then, the case has not generated a lot of ongoing commentary, unlike, say, the Hobby Lobby decision. Uh, in my opinion, this is a mistake. I'd like to argue today that although Town of Greece did not result in as much fanfare as other decisions reached this year, it will prove to be very consequential. In fact, the case marks a major change in approach towards Establishment Clause cases, both in the Supreme Court and in the lower courts. The case re-anchors the Establishment Clause in the history and text of the Constitution in a way that could calm down this corner of the culture wars. 
but before I explain why I think that's so, uh, I, I should tell you a little bit about the facts uh, in town of Greece against Galloway. Uh, Greece is a town in upstate New York near Rochester. Uh, the town council had a practice uh, of opening its uh, meetings with uh, the Pledge of Allegiance and a prayer led by uh, a volunteer uh, member of the clergy in the town. And you know, these, this practice of legislative prayer uh, started with the first Congress um, and has persisted in Congress in every single state legislature. And you know, I would venture to say that most municipalities across the country uh, engage in this practice. Um, the, the prayer in Greece was given by clergy that were selected from congregations in the town that were listed in a local community guide. So there's just a you know, town official that just looked in the community guide, called somebody up, said you want to do the prayer this week. Uh, town left the prayer program open to all religious groups, but since nearly all of the houses of worship in Greece are Christian, almost all the participating prayer givers were also Christian. So the plaintiffs, who identified themselves as atheists and Jewish respectively, said that the town's prayer practices violated the Establishment Clause because they said it showed a preference for Christians. Um, they filed suit, uh, seeking to force the town to use only inclusive uh, prayers and only prayers that referred to what they called a, quote, generic God. Uh, I suspect they also would have been happy if there wouldn't have been any prayer at all. The, the district court ruled against the plaintiffs for the town, but on appeal, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals reversed and said that the predominance of Christian volunteer prayer givers constituted an endorsement of religion. The Supreme Court then took up the case. Uh, the decision split five to four with Justice Kennedy writing for the majority and Justice Kagan authoring the principal dissent. Um, but there were also two concurrences, one by uh, Justice Alito and one by Justice uh, Thomas, and then a dissent, uh, an additional dissent by Justice Breyer. Uh, the majority opinion applied a 1983 decision, March Against Chambers, to uphold the practice. Uh, it's the only previous legislative prayer case decided by the Supreme Court, and it said that Nebraska's practice of having a paid Presbyterian chaplain deliver prayers was okay. Uh, Justice Kennedy said that Greece's municipal uh, prayers were like the legislative prayers in March and thus did not offend the Constitution. Now, a lot of people thought that's where the case was just going to stop. It would be a simple application of the, the previous precedent that the Second Circuit had ignored. But he didn't stop there. Uh, Justice Kennedy went on to say that, uh, he, to explain what Marsh meant and why uh, it made sense to rule this way. And what he said was, quote, it is not necessary to define the precise boundary of the Establishment Clause where history shows that the specific practice is permitted. Any test the court adopts must acknowledge a practice that was accepted by the framers and has withstood the critical scrutiny of time and political change. And then he's, he applies it to the town's prayer practices. He says, the prayer opportunity in this case must be evaluated against the backdrop of historical practice. Uh, as a practice that has long endured, legislative prayer has become part of our heritage tradition, part of our expressive idiom, uh, similar to things like you know the inaugural prayers or the recitation of God save the United States in this honorable court. Uh, this particular government, the particular governmental practice being challenged under the Establishment Clause has to be evaluated against the backdrop of historical practice. This is a huge change in the law of the Establishment, of the establishment Clause because for the past several decades, since there, uh, you know, uh, about 40 years ago, uh, in a case called Lemon against Kurtzman, the Supreme Court sort of detached 
the Establishment Clause alone among Bill of Rights uh, rights from uh, from uh, history and tradition, and did not look at what did the framers actually mean when they put that text into the Constitution. So the Establishment Clause became completely detached from both the text and the history of the Constitution. Uh, so what Justice Kennedy is saying is that we have to reattach that. Uh, the principal dissent by Justice Kagan sharply disagreed with the majority opinion, arguing that the facts presented in the appeal took Greece well outside the scope of the prayers protected by Marsh. But the sharpness of the disagreement about the particular facts in this case masked what was actually a very large agreement with the majority opinion on the substance of the Establishment Clause. Both the majority and the dissent agreed that the legislative prayer is constitutional under some circumstances. Both agree that faith-specific legislative prayer is also constitutional under some circumstances. Uh, and you know this is common. You know if the Congress might have a if it has a Hindu uh, give the prayer to open up the House of Representatives on a day that's going to be a Hindu prayer, not a Christian prayer. Or if a rabbi comes and and uh, speaks, it's going to be a Jewish prayer not, and faith specific, not a not some other uh, religious tradition. Um, and what all nine justices were saying is, we agree this is okay in some circumstances. Um, but the most important thing is that they all agree now that history is a guide to the perplexed judge who confronts an establishment cause challenge. The remaining difference is really quite narrow, and it's over the sort of subtests within the historical analysis and how the historical analysis applied to what Greece was doing. Um, and that the justices could agree on so much in an establishment clause case is pretty amazing. Uh, this is a pretty fraught area, area of the law, and it actually heralds the possibility of an eventual consensus position on the court uh, regarding how to approach establishment clause cases. Now let's back up for a moment from the context of legislative prayer and see what does this mean in the broader context of the Establishment Clause? What it means is that an area of Bill of Rights law that had been completely untethered from the history and text of the Constitution has now been reattached. Uh, the court has, has instructed the lower courts to consider history when deciding Establishment Clause cases in light of what the framers thought was an establishment. Many in this audience will be familiar with the transformative effect that the Heller and McDonald cases have had on Second Amendment law. Uh, those cases were rooted in the history and the text of the Second Amendment, looking at why the founders adopted the Second Amendment in the first place, and, and looking at the specific question of whether the right to bear arms was an individual right or a right that could be dispensed by individual state governments as part of a state-run militia. The court said that history showed and historical scholarship that had been developed by law professors showed that that right was an individual one, not a collective right. And thus, that part of the Bill of Rights was essentially reawoken from a very long slumber. That's exactly the dynamic that I expect the town of Greece case to, to result in with respect to the Establishment Clause, because the Supreme Court has told the lower courts, you have to look at history first. We're going to ignore the other tests that have gotten developed, uh, mostly by the Burger Court, in deciding Establishment Clause cases, and move away from the abstract and ahistorical tests and towards concrete tests that look at historical facts. And ideally, that means that the founders' original vision will be restored. Uh, I'm happy to report that this historical approach to the Establishment Clause was the one that we proposed in our amicus brief. And in that brief, we specifically argued, uh, borrowing from extensive historical research from Professor Michael McConnell at Stanford Law School, 
uh, in a, a groundbreaking article that I recommend you read if you're interested in history called Establishment and Disestablishment at the Founding. Um, and what we said is there's four, there's really four ways that you can have an establishment, government coercion of religious belief, government control of churches or other religious bodies, government funding of churches, and government delegation of, of government powers to churches. These are the things that the founders considered to be an establishment. And past that, uh, there wasn't, uh, past that, there shouldn't be an establishment clause violation. Um, so if you're a federal judge now, how should you go about deciding an establishment clause case? Instead of asking the, current, the, the previous abstract question under the lemon test of, does this advance religion? Um, instead, you ask the concrete question of, into which history, category of historical establishments, the establishments recognized by the founders, does this claim fall? Um, and Justice Thomas suggested as much in his concurring opinion when he said the crucial question here is, what constituted an establishment for the founders? Um, the town of Greece tasked the lower courts to begin this historical inquiry into a feature of public life that, of course, was far more familiar to the framers than it is today. They grew up in a system where there was both an official church in Great Britain, as well as official churches in many, but not all, of the colonies. Uh, and so they really knew what they were talking about when they talked about an establishment. We haven't had that since the 1830s in the United States. So why do I think objective observers should be pleased with this turn towards history in town of Greece, regardless of their opinions on religious matters? I will offer three reasons here. First and foremost, rerouting the Establishment Clause in the history and the text of the Constitution brings this area of the law back into our Constitution's system of ordered liberty that we've, we, we have, you know, uh, Ilya was saying earlier, government of law, and, or maybe it was Roger was talking about the government of, of laws, not men. That's, that's what this does, is bring this back into the law of the Constitution. Um, second, it, you, you don't have judges making decisions based on their, under, their personal understanding of policy, or worse, their personal policy preferences. Uh, you have constitutional limits uh, that govern the, the actions of both the local governments and private parties. Sec, uh, third, by reconnecting the history and the text of the Constitution, Establishment Clause decisions will become a lot more predictable. Right now, uh, it's extremely hard uh, to, to predict what's going to happen in an Establishment Clause case in the lower courts. Um, it, by taking it away from the abstract theorizing that the Lemon Test demands and moving towards concrete facts that ta the Town of Greece case demands, we'll actually be able to figure out what the law is. Finally, the historical approach will turn down, I predict, the temperature in this area of the culture wars. By taking what amount to policy decisions uh, and personal preferences away from judges and giving them back to towns and cities, the court has opened up room for political compromise. And indeed, since the Supreme Court's decision, the town of Greece itself has made a peace of sorts with, with uh, the atheists in the town, allowing them to participate in the opening of their council sessions. This wasn't under the compulsion of a court order, nor was it under the false uh, a false interpretation of the Constitution. They did it uh, because they decided that was the right thing to do. That heralds a new area of, area of potential cooperation in this contentious part of the culture wars, and I think most reasonable people, regardless of their religious views, will see that as a good thing. All this talk about Greece, and yet no John Travolta jokes, you know, to, 
legislative prayer, a stand alive, something. Let rest of the locator. All right. Um, do any of the panelists have any comments about each other's presentations before I open it up uh, to the floor? I'd like a brief uh, response to Eric's sure. analysis because I disagree with it. I wish, first of all, Eric, I wish it were true that the town were, in fact, living up to its representations before the Supreme Court. But I guess they're engaging in the same kind of truthiness that, that politicians do. Uh, it's true that they did invite or accept the volunteered participation of a couple of, I think, one atheist and one Wiccan. But um, a recent news story has reported that the town has now issued a new policy which says that the only invited speakers will represent, quote, assemblies with an established presence in the town of Greece that regularly meet for the primary purpose of sharing a religious perspective, quote, unquote. So as Americans United for Separation of Church and State points out, this is a bait and switch. This is a bait and switch, thank you. Um, uh, and I think is completely inconsistent with the majority opinion in which Justice Kennedy um, says that the only way that synagogues could be included would be if you would extend the invitation to beyond the borders of of, of, of Greece itself, um, but he says the exclusion was at worst careless. It was not done with a discriminatory intent, quote, or open paren. I would view this case very differently if the omission of these synagogues were intentional. Well, it now seems that, among other things, that uh, there is an intentional exclusion of those synagogues, and not to mention of anybody who doesn't have a religious perspective. I also think that you know there are different views of history. I think to presume that because some practice existed at the founding, that it is therefore presumptively constitutional, which is expressly what the majority opinion said, is incredibly dangerous for those of us who view liber who revere liberty. What about the Alien and Sedition Acts that were passed by that early Congress? So I think uh, relying on history so strongly does not favor liberty either in this situation or more generally. Well, if that Wiccan hadn't sacrificed an animal before <laughs> the beginning, <laughs> this whole thing might have gone smoother. Now, Eric, I have I have represented a, a goat sacrificer uh, in, in Texas before, so. Now, Eric, do you have any comment on this new policy in Greece or others that I've heard about? I think there's a town of Virginia that said that they're only taking, you know, an even more uh, fishy-sounding policy since the opinion are, are, are some uh, towns being uh, kind of uh, willfully exaggerating what the Supreme Court said? Well, so if I can just respond to the the facts of the policy, I mean, the... I think you were talking about what happened prior to the case getting to the Supreme Court. So no, you're talking about the Baha'i and the Wiccan... This, yeah. But then, the, but then after that, they actually have had uh, atheists come in and give the, uh, you know, right. they, they don't call it a prayer, but they... subsequent to that, so... Well, okay, I I, 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 for I, what they do. Yeah, I'm not, yeah. I, 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 I don't, don't know about that, but uh, uh, I would have to, uh, <laughs> I, I can fight you on the facts, I guess. Um, but, but I think that, I do think that, the, you know, it doesn't mean that they just have a license to you know, do whatever they want. And I think that if you if you end up having a system where it is uh, something where they're declaring a particular religion to be the religion of this of this entity, that's clearly what the founders thought was an establishment. Um, 
they thought that, you know, when, when it was the church by law established in England, that that was an, an established church, and that was what they were trying to get rid of when they passed, or not have at the, the national level when they passed uh, or enacted the Establishment Clause. So um, I don't know if I answered your question, but I think, I think that if, if somebody's shown to be there will, know, sort of there will still be ongoing litigation. There will still there will still be ongoing litigation, but I think that if if someone's acting in in good faith, I, I think that you know there's room for compromise as opposed to uh, you know we have to uh, sue about it every time. So, all right, let's open it up to the floor. Uh, please wait to be called on. We have a microphone coming. Wait for the mic, and then please introduce yourself and any affiliation. Questions. Not on. Trevor Burris on the Cato Institute. Uh, my question is for Mr. Rossbach. Um, do you think that the Establishment Clause allows states under original interpretation to establish religions? Uh, I, th I think that when it was originally enacted, that they, they clearly contemplated allowing uh, the establishment, the state establishments to continue uh, because they did for a long time. I mean, Massachusetts didn't get rid of its uh, congregationalist establishment until uh, the 1830s. So I, I think it's pretty clear that, that that was certainly what they were doing uh, at that time. Um, you know, the effect of the Civil War amendments would be the, the question of, you know, is this incorporated against the, uh, has this been incorporated against the states? Um, I believe Justice Thomas doesn't think it was, um, but other justices. I think Akhil Amar agrees with him on that, actually. That, the, that it uh, wasn't incorporated. Right. Well, because an incorporation itself is a, is a malapropism just because of the way that the Privileges or Immunities Clause was, was written out in the slaughterhouse cases. And uh, um, you know, rather than uh, understanding the 14th Amendment to guarantee those rights against state violations, you, you, the court came up with this piecemeal doctrine of, of incorporation uh, uh, after the fact, so you know now. Now, clearly, the doc the, the the doctrine is that it is established, but no uh, pun intended. Right, uh, right. But that actually, there's a refinement on that for both Akhil Amar and even Justice Thomas, in his separate opinion in this case, reiterated that to the extent the non-establishment clause is seen as working together with the free exercise clause as protect designed to protect individual religious liberty. And that should be something that's a very powerful view for libertarians, um, that to that extent, it is an individual right that is logically incorporated in the 14th Amendment. And, and you also have an argument. The Hosanna Tabor case that I mentioned we did a couple of years ago looked at the, the rights of, of the institutions, both under the, under the Free Exercise Clause and the Establishment Clause. But it was the first time that you actually had a case where uh, a private entity was uh, benefiting from a, 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 an establishment clause claim that they that they'd brought um, in, uh, you know, where it was a religious entity. It was working to the redounding to the benefit of a religious entity. Um, All these people, no questions. Either we were completely we're clear or completely obscure. Uh, right there. And then after that, we'll go here since we have to just get ready for that. Uh, Phil Harvey, uh, DKT Liberty Project. Nadine, I was struck by your brief discussion of disagreement within the ACLU about 
limits on political speech. Mm -hmm. um, can you just guess for us why it seems so difficult for generally left-leaning people to fail to see the free speech aspects of uh, campaign finance restrictions? Um, is it just because money is presumed to come from right-wingers, or is it just because money is inherently evil? Um, I, I've encountered this fairly often, and uh, there's some zealots mm -hmm. on the free speech, every other free speech issue. They'll go to great lengths to um, um, pr protect uh, rights for free expression, but they go completely the other way on... Uh, well, Phil, that's because uh, pole dancing was at the heart of the framers' conception of the First Amendment and political speech. I mean, well, I yeah. I uh, yeah. agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, um, thanks for giving me that opportunity, Phil. First of all, the ink that has been spilled, including in a lot of um, Inside the Beltway publications, is, I think, exaggerating the source of the so-called dissension within the ACLU, because it's coming from people who are, are no longer and for a long time have not been leaders of the ACLU. In fact, there was a, uh, but six former leaders, Ira Glasser, who was the most immediate predecessor of the current executive director who continues to strongly oppose any kind of regulations. Ira wrote a terrific uh, response to these former leaders that I believe was in the Huffington Post, in which he said that the most recent time that any one of them had served was about 30 years ago. So current leadership and going back to, I, I uh, became president in 1991, going back even before that has consistently, strongly supported uh, free speech and is continuing to oppose the constitutional amendment. Now, I do have to say, it's kind of ironic that these former leaders are saying, uh, because they were distressed that apparently uh, our current Washington office director, Laura Murphy, submitted a wonderful, a powerful uh, letter opposing the constitutional amendment. And it's such a partisan issue. I, I don't understand it. I can't wrap my mind around the fact that not a single Democrat has, has spoken out against that amendment that the Republicans unanimously on a recent procedural vote did vote against it. I mean, this should not be a partisan issue. There should be people on both sides of the aisle that are strongly standing up for free speech, but it has devolved into a partisan issue. And so I think what, what fueled the flames here was when Ted Cruz cited the current Laura Murphy ACLU uh, leader's letter opposing the constitutional amendment brought, that brought these former leaders out of, out of the closet. I have to say, you know, if, if anything, it's ironic that they're saying the ACLU is now too protective of free speech in this area, because a few years ago, the National Board uh, did something over my strong opposition. I was no longer on it, but I, I, I wrote letters. I opposed it, um, modifying what had been our uh, com, com, you know, consistent opposition 
to any kind of limits on contributions or expenditures. And the current policy supports, quote, reasonable limits on contributions. So if anything, the current board is moving in the wrong direction, Phil. Uh, I don't think it's going to move further than that, but that, that's too far. I, I think you um, hit the, I mean, I'm not an expert on, on liberals. I much consider myself much more of a libertarian than a liberal. But I do think you put your finger on it that uh, to engage in a little bit of stereotyping and generalizations that liberals are suspicious of money the way conservatives are suspicious of sex. You know, uh, seriously, you know, everybody has a blind spot. And suspicious of and deprived of. <laughs> here, here at Cato, we like them both. So. Actually, that reminds me, one uh, the uh, former president of the ACLU of Georgia was married to a a prostitute who had been one of his clients that he met at an ACLU case, and it was um, she was she was became a big time media person. She was always uh, interviewed on all kinds of talk shows, and right before some political convention, uh, she was asked whether she would be working the convention because she continued to work even after her marriage, and um, she said that she she would not work at a Democratic convention only at a Republican one uh, because Republicans were more into kinky sex. Uh, and Democrats believe they should get it for free. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I believe we had here. And raise your hands. I'll, I'll get to you since we have multiple mics. Hey, Hans von Spakovsky, the Heritage Foundation. Before my question, I should say there, there is a state-established religion, certainly where I come from, football. But... Um, <laughs> My question is, uh, what do you all think about the constitutionality of the Johnson Amendment? You know, that's the amendment in 1954 that uh, said that churches, for example, their ministers can't uh, engage in any kind of political speech. This was something put forward by Lyndon Johnson because he didn't like that that was happening. And I wonder what do you think about the constitutionality of that? There's been some a lot of discussion of that. And in, and in fact, you know, if that had been around before the American Civil War, it would have prohibited many churches from talking about uh, uh, getting rid of slavery and uh, all of the politics involved with that. And, and to but, be clear, this isn't about tax-exempt status. It's about whether they can actually speak at all in the church. Well, it's, it's, it's about their tax-exempt. It is about their tax-exempt the status. The Amendment was? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah. So it's, it's – it, but, uh, you know, you're right. I mean, it would have, it would have ended up, uh, you know, taking away Martin Luther uh, King Jr.'s tax status because he was speaking on political issues and about politi specific political candidates. Um, it's probably not uh, a surprise to anybody that, you know, the Beckett Fund strongly opposes the Johnson Amendment and thinks that it is un unconstitutional, uh, and it, it really limits speech. And, and frankly, it, it has a sort of scary censorship aspect to it. Um, we, there was a case recently filed by the Freedom From Religion Foundation uh, suing the IRS saying you're not enforcing the Johnson Amendment enough against uh, churches. Uh, so we actually intervened in that case on behalf of a church to say, well, we think the Johnson Amendment is unconstitutional and, you know, our client doesn't want to get uh, put in jail for, or not put in jail, but have his tax exempt status stripped solely because of something he said in a sermon to his, you know, congregants. And, uh, not too long after that, the, the IRS and FFRF decided they really needed to get rid of this case. Once we got to the discovery stage and we were going to start getting documents from the IRS. Now, whether we would have actually gotten any documents from the IRS is another question. 
Um, but but I believe it was, they were all deleted. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, they're on someone's hard drive at the bottom of the Potomac. So uh, you know, it's but it's something where we uh, we really uh, they just ran away from it. And the problem is that it's very hard to sue the IRS. You can't bring a declaratory judgment action against them. So the constitutionality has never been uh, tested. But they did reveal recently uh, to Congress that they are currently investigating 99 churches under the Johnson Amendment, and, uh, but they won't tell anybody uh, who it is to protect privacy. Well, I think the fact that the, the tax exemption is involved makes it a much more complicated situation than it would be if the facts were just as you described them. And I don't even know what Cato's position is on this, but you know, many economists say that have a flat tax and not have any exemptions or whatever. Yeah, anyway. because because many economists would say that the effectively an exemption is the same as a subsidy. So it's one thing to say, well, of course, uh, members of the clergy should have free speech to make political comments, but it's something else to say entirely to say, but they are entitled, entitled to have taxpayers fund them for doing that. That's, that's but let's say issue. let's say you were still at the ACLU because this applies to all different exactly. charities, not I, just not just churches, including Cato. In, we're a five hundred one c three. So let's so let's say you know campaign finance reform becomes a big issue in an election. Um, the and the IRS's interpretation. You know, Cato's tax-exempt status would become endangered if around election time it started talking a lot about that issue. Mm -hmm. And they reserve the right to sort of censor, you know, even what we're talking about right now. They could look at the transcript of this thing and decide, well, you know, we're going to send you a nasty letter, you know. And it's the IRS, so everybody's scared of the IRS and everybody's scared of losing tax-exempt status. So it's it's actually a, a really bad uh, structure for that or ability for them to have. Well, there was that uh, contributor agreement that you signed that said that you would indemnify us if, uh, you know, anything comes out of this. So. <laughs> we'll see if that holds up. I may need deeper pockets. I believe no. there was a hand there, and then we'll move over here. Back to campaign finance. One of the uh, add-ons to the contribution limits are the limits on coordination. Mm -hmm with uh, uh, candidate with the candidate campaigns and I would welcome your thoughts on those especially since they exist in at least one state where there's no campaign contribution limit and uh, there's been some fuss about that in Wisconsin well you know, this area is so complex that if you don't do it full time as somebody like Alan does. So if he cares to comment, I would welcome him. It's hard to keep afloat. I noticed that in the um, oral argument in this case, Justice Scalia, who hardly has any false sense of modesty, uh, actually said, you know, this whole, the, the regulations here are so complex, I don't understand them. So um, with the disclaimer that I'm, I'm not a full-time expert, I know that there is really a problem in the sense that if you have too overly broad a definition, which I believe we do, of a coordinated expenditure, the expenditure, which would ordinarily be presumptively constitutional, right, um, if it's deemed to be independent. But if you have an overly broad concept of coordinated, what 
would be an expenditure becomes a contribution, presumptively subject to regulation. And um, the FEC ha has construed coordination so broadly that it has made for the ACLU in some situations impossible for us to meet with congressional staff to work together on issues of common concern for fear that that could mean that what would otherwise be expenditures would be treated as contributions. But if Alan is here and wants to comment, I know he knows far more about this than I do. I think he just stepped out. Oh, sorry. Then. Actually, I'd like to, to, to jump in on this because I think that, that this uh, reflects an issue that's really not basic to what we're doing today so much as it is basic to Cato. Uh, and basic to basic to a, a libertarian point of view, is that um, um, in law, as elsewhere in life, uh, complexity beyond a certain point yes. is fraud. Yeah. Uh, I, I give you airline seat pricing. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's an example. I mean, once things become too complex exactly. to understand, there is a Kafka-esque uh, uh, element to government. And I think that one of our mission, certainly at a judicial level, but at, a, at as an institutional level, is clarity. I would rather have a bad law that was clear, I mean, up to a point, uh, uh, but than, 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 than a law where, you know, it, it becomes Kafka's the trial, or a law that, that may be good, may be bad, but is incomprehensible. I think that's a really, really important point. I remember a few years ago I was speaking here, and James Bopp was on my panel, and he was talking about some recent campaign, and he does do a full-time uh, campaign finance regulation. He stood up, and he started by simply reciting the number of regulations, the number, the thousands of pages, the thousands of rulings, and basically all you had to do was to hear what is essentially this complex system of prior restraints. You have to consult a campaign finance lawyer before you can make a political statement. After McCain-Feingold was, was uh, you know, so some of you lawyers may special in this area, you may think that's a good thing from that perspective. But after McCain-Feingold was passed, I mean, the ACLU could not engage in issue advocacy, which under our own corporate charter is the only thing we do. We prohibit ourselves from making partisan statements, but we couldn't even make statements on issues without hiring and consulting with campaign finance lawyers. And, and that's ex it's sort of the same, circling back to the Johnson Amendment thing. I mean, you know, this, you know, how often is like a little, you know, church or a little synagogue going to be able to decide, you know, hire a uh, tax lawyer to help them deal with the IRS regs uh, that have been developed under the Johnson Amendment. So I, I couldn't agree more that when you have an expansion of regulations, you know, it helps the regulators. They get more power because they're the only ones who understand them. There was a hand in the second row, ma'am. Did you have a... Nasa Rich, no affiliation. I uh, was going to ask, but maybe it's been answered in a way, maybe the only way it can be answered, what the difference is between a contribution and an expenditure. Mm -hmm. Well, some uh, people, including some judges, have said conceptually there really isn't a distinction, but 
an expenditure, independent expenditure, is if you spend, and you may be surprised that there was ever an attempt to, to stifle this. There was under the um, campaign, the original federal law that was passed after Watergate that limited the amount that you could spend to put your message out there, say to print a handbill or to take out an ad in a newspaper or to rent a billboard that said, um, uh, either e either you know, vote no on this referendum or vote for this candidate, but it was your own message. You know, we're a citizens organization that says you should vote this way or expresses an opinion. Fortunately, the Supreme Court said that may not be limited. Uh, if you are, uh, until recently, uh, you were free to do that only if you were an individual. Under uh, Citizens United in 2010, it said you may make independent expenditures uh, if you are a union or a corporation as well. As distinguished from writing a check to a candidate, okay, that's a contribution. And you may well be baffled that there's a distinction, many people are, but uh, the Supreme Court said there is not as much expression involved in the amount of the contribution you make, that no matter what the amount is, it is simply your symbolic statement of support for that candidate. And there is, and they argued there is also more of a chance that it's gonna to lead to corruption, that you, the candidate will vote in a way that he or she wouldn't or take an action that he or she wouldn't have without that contribution. But on both sides of this debate, I think there is a strong agreement that, including this one thing I do agree with Bert Newborn, one of the former uh, ACLU leaders who says there's no meaningful distinction, John Paul Stevens on the Supreme Court, no meaningful distinction, and everything should be regulated. And then there are those of us on the other side, Thomas most prominently on the Supreme Court, saying there's no meaningful distinction and everything should be unregulated. And to be clear, this is a court-created distinction. That is, this goes back to Buckley versus Vallejo, 1976, the foundational uh, uh, ruling in the modern campaign finance era, uh, responding to a challenge to the post-Watergate uh, Federal Election Campaign Act, which was subsequently amended by McCain-Feingold, and then we have you know everything uh, since then. But this Congress did not create a distinction in how it regulates campaigns and expenditures. It wanted to restrict both. And the court, one of the things it did, and this is why it's problematic, uh, kind of similar to what was at issue in the Obamacare litigation, a lot of these kind of uh, omnibus large uh, uh, statutes, the court rewrote the law to uphold some of it, not all of it, and uh, uh, created this regime that didn't pass in Congress at the time, unclear what would happen in Congress now, uh, and, and we're, we're living with the, its re repercussions ever since, as Nadine uh, graciously quoted my brief, I don't think it's a stable distinction. And uh, eventually, uh, you know, our current regime, it's being chipped away at by all these various challenges by Jim Bopp and others, um, but uh, eventually it's going to collapse under its own weight and, and we'll, we'll go with something else, hopefully uh, a free or less regulated rather than a, a more restrictive world. I mean, my, my hypothesis is that the court was so... Uh, so wanted to avoid the enormous outrage that greeted Citizens United that that probably motivated the majority, the plurality, not to quite take that step yet. All right, uh, here. No, uh, John had a, has, you should have a question, John? No? All right, Stuart. Hello, in the back. Yeah, Hi. Yeah, that's uh, next, that's next, yeah. Hi, my name's Stuart Taylor. I'm freelance writer and uh, hanger on at the uh, Brookings Institution. 
Um, I'm wondering what this group thinks of disclosure requirements, uh, that subset of campaign finance laws. I think some years ago there were a lot of uh, conservative critics of campaign finance laws who thought, well, could disclosure's okay. You know, that's a nice clean thing where at least you're entitled to know who's who's giving all the big money. And uh, some of them, Brad Smith, for example, who I've talked to about this, have changed their minds because they've seen boycotts, personal attacks, picketing houses. They've seen disclosure leading to harassment of people who make independent expenditures, for example. And this is a big issue, one of the big criticisms of liberal and conservative advocacy groups spending uh, on issue ads is they don't have to disclose their donors. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Are disclosure laws good? Not so good. Stuart, it's nice to see you again. Uh, in this was an issue that went back to Buckley, and interestingly, I re recently reread the brief that the ACLU filed in Buckley, which uh, took a nuanced position that you had to, which is pretty much what the Supreme Court has done, right? Looking at the particular value to the free flow of information and transparency, the First Amendment values that come from disclosure versus the potentially chilling impact on free speech if the fear of disclosure or the knowledge of disclosure might chill you from engaging in the expression in the first place and also the associated invasion of privacy and basically said you have to look at the details of the particular situation. Among other things, um, the limits, the, the, the disclosure requirements kick in now at such small amounts of contributions. Again, there's probably somebody who knows the exact number. I believe for federal campaigns, it is a $200. Uh, and it's been that way for a long time, and it hasn't been adjusted for inflation. Well, what's the benefit of anybody knowing about a $200 campaign. There is absolutely no chance that that is going to lead to influence or access, even if you accept that as a legitimate concern. So among other things, to have a sufficient just, uh, justification for the invasion of privacy and potentially chilling impact, you have to raise the disclosure limits much higher. Um, another factor which we advocated in Buckley and which the Supreme Court subsequently followed was um, you have to look at um, the unpopularity uh, or per perhaps controversial nature of the political party to which the contribution is being made. So people might be much more chilled to make a contribution to the Socialist Party or to the Cato Institute, uh, so, uh, uh, it, something, or in to, to an example which you might have been referencing, um, an anti-gay rights campaign that they would be more likely, because those views are now unpopular, um, that they would be more likely to be deterred. And in a case involving the Socialist Workers' Party, the court said for that reason, um, the disclosure requirements should not be enforced. Yeah, in, indeed, uh, you know, the prototypical case of, of late is the campaign for Prop 8 uh, in California about the uh, definition of marriage. Um, the reason for disclosure is to know, you know, where politicians get their money to see, you know, who's bought whom, et cetera. Well, this is a proposition. Uh, I don't understand how a proposition can be bought one way or another. So clearly the only purpose, uh, there are two purposes. One, to chill, uh, to prevent people from donating to that cause, and secondly, to target them afterwards, uh, which is effectively is the same thing. And so 
um, you know, maybe at the very highest levels, the people's interest in um, you know, the integrity or knowing what's going on in elections starts approaching the individual uh, right of free association and political speech and, and all the rest of it, maybe. But it's certainly at a much higher level than the current max donation of $2,600. I, I was testifying on this subject uh, two years ago in uh, uh, the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee, Dick Durbin presiding, and I said, Senator, I think that uh, I think you know, more of you than to think that you can be bought for $2,600. And, and so that's, you know, Ted Cruz has proposed, for example, uh, removing all contribution limits and having instant disclosure. Uh, again, I don't believe in instant disclosure for, you know, somebody who donates 100 bucks or something like that. That doesn't accomplish anything, um, you know, maybe at the, at the very high levels, but certainly not for independent spending because that's, uh, again, not... Uh, the civil rights movement, of course, is the great, yeah. is our great lesson in this. There were a lot of people who supported the civil rights movement and had every reason not to want their name known. And we may come up against um, uh, um, other such uh, uh, issues in the future. You can go back to abolitionist times, actually, uh, uh, where a lot of the uh, abolitionist uh, supporters did not want their names known for very uh, uh, good reasons. So, yeah, I think he, I think he, a very high bar of proof is required for knowing who's contributed what to what and whom. Last question, the very back row. You've been patient, sir. Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm Michael McLeod Ball. I'm the chief of staff of the Washington Legislative Office of the ACLU, and I wanted to just chime in on a couple of these issues that have been raised here. Um, uh, in this last discussion, it all comes down to figuring out if, if there is a way to distinguish between what is an independent expenditure and what is a coordinated expenditure. The statute just uses the, the term independent or coordination. Uh, and it's the FEC that's adopted regulations that, that create a, a, a strained view of, of what that is. And it's very easy for the candidates and for their supporters to get around that definition by just, by just uh, creating these independent or organizations that meet the rules. And so any normal person who would open up a dictionary to look at the definitions of those words, it, it just wouldn't match up with what is in the regulation. So it's not even a statutory direction that's creating the confusion. It's, it's, um, it's how, how, as normal people, we would, we would understand those words. And it gets back to what Mr. O'Rourke says about the, uh, the complexity of the situation creating, creating these awkward awkward circumstances. And I just wanted to, uh, as, as a liberal, I wanted to chime in on what I think liberals uh, get hung up on. Um, and, and I think it has to do with, with a misunderstanding that they think that the political system, the communications in politics today are dominated so that the voice of the little person is not being heard. And I think that is a misunderstanding because I think you see millions of views that are, that are being expressed every day. You have a media that's more fragmented than it's ever been before, catering to all the different points of view on the spectrum. Um, but I think that's the root of the, of the liberal suspicion uh, 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 in this area. It's a good point to end on. So let's uh, thank our panelists.